Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, it's time to get serious. Not Yahoo serious. We're talking about quality of advice review serious. Why are mountains never serious? Is it because they're hill areas? You can be assured we don't ask that, but do ask other serious questions about breaking price promises. I've been told I should get therapy for all the issues I conceal with jokes, but there's no concealing the latest announcements on litigation funds. Hello, everyone. This week, I'm joined by Deputy Editor Wendy Pugh, Editor John Deeks, and Chairman Terry McMullen. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning, Andrew. Have you ever been accused of being too serious? I have. (laughs) It's not true. And uh, hello, John. Hello. No old blighty jokes this time, but you're a bit under the weather today. Yes, uh, I've got a case of the man flu, I'm afraid, um, but not COVID, according to my to my test results, anyways. As long as one thing's not too serious. <laughs> and lastly, good morning, Terry. Good morning. As the doom monger amongst us, how serious is it? What, the lurgy? Oh, no, 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 not John's lurgy. The news this week. Oh, it's... You know, we we live in an up and down world, Andrew. It's, you know, there's always going to be something to worry us and something to make us feel better. Well, I don't know whether this is up or down, but now we've had time to properly go through the interim proposals for the quality of advice review. And when I say we, I mean, Wendy, what's it looking like? Well, after releasing the paper, there was a follow-up webinar where the reviewer, Michelle Levy, ran through the proposals and the, and the thinking behind them. So she sort of emphasises that the bottom line is that she wants it to be easier for consumers to get advice and for various providers to give it. And she's really honed in on taking away that confusion about what's general advice and what's personal advice. And she's done that by extending the, um, the reach of personal advice. And it's been pointed out that people have been tying themselves up in not trying to to avoid the more onerous regulation that comes from giving personal advice. And and that's not serving anyone very well. So she's trying to encourage helpful conversations to take place. So as part of that, she's trying to uh, uh, reduce the compliance burden and written documentation associated with personal advice. So getting rid of statements of advice and providing more flexibility around how financial services guides are provided and she proposes replacing the best interest duty obligation that now exists with a a duty simply to give uh, good advice which is defined as advice reasonably likely to benefit the client having regard to information available to the provider at the time. What do brokers think about this John? Well we don't fully know yet because Neva says it's it's looking at the report and it's uh, talking to members and so on but I had a look back at what brokers have said in the past about personal advice and general advice. And NEBA has been quite clear in recent years that the brokers should look to give personal advice because, you know, really giving advice is is what a broker does and just just operating under the general advice setup doesn't doesn't really give the client what they want or expect from a broker. But NEBA has also made the point in the past that it's it's quite tricky to give personal advice and 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 they've made the point to ASIC and others that it should be made uh, more straightforward for brokers to be able to give personal advice. So from that point of view, you can imagine that they might quite like some of these proposals, but uh, we really just have to wait for NEBA to get across this fairly lengthy report and, uh, and talk to its members as well. Terry, I haven't prepared you for this question, but this seems like it's an about face for the, the original Financial Service Reform Act. I, th- I think the, the the government's furiously, or certainly gently, trying to, to find a way around the real problem, which was that 
customers were all getting general advice and the need is to tie you to to personal advice so, so that your total circumstances are being taken into account the the general advice thing turned into a a, a bit of a cop out towards the end there and i re- i really do think that something needed to be done well, we've talked about this issue before, John, but ASIC has come up fighting on insurers breaking pricing promises. That's right. We we listed all these uh, incidents not, not too long ago. RACQ was the latest one when it said that it would be refunding more than $200 million to customers. Before that, we had QBE and also IAG. Uh, IAG is actually being taken to court over it by ASIC. And all of these issues basically surround insurers not keeping their promises to customers. So it might be something like, this is just an example, but it might be something like a multi-policy discount or something like that that's just not put in in place. And ASIC this week have come out with some quite strong comments about it. They basically say that this appears to be a failure to properly manage non-financial risk. Insurers' systems and controls haven't been robust enough to manage these risks. And basically, the the products and the discounts that they've been offering have been too complicated, too complex, and insurers haven't been able to keep track of all the promises that they've been making to customers in a centralised and complete way. So last October, ASIC called on all the general insurers to examine their pricing systems as a matter of priority, and I think this is why we're seeing so many of these issues coming to the forefront now. It's not a great look, Terry, but should insurers get credit for digging out these problems and putting them right? Any credit they get should be discounted by ASIC and then lost in the files, I think. Look, I mean, all these sales techniques can really can be hard to keep track of, but but that's their problem. They dream them up. Uh, good on the companies for pointing out they knew all along that sales incentives and discounts stuff up their internal workings. I'm sure Macca's has the same problem. But, you know, is really, is this the best way to sell insurance? It's certainly not if you can't even keep track of it. Now, ASIC have also been getting serious about how life insurance handle their claims, John. Yes, that's right. Um, some, some other strong comments from ASIC on life insurance claims and particularly individual disability income insurance claims. So uh, ASIC found that uh, insurers were carrying out surveillance in about 1% of claims, but ASIC didn't believe that that surveillance was always justified. You know, it's quite an intrusive uh, method of investigating a claim. And also this surveillance was used in, in mental health claims as well, which ASIC also had concerns about. It's also worried about the the insurers fishing on non-disclosure issues. So uh, this is where uh, there's no real reason for an insurer to investigate potential non-disclosure, but they do it anyway. And that could be, you know, to do with a claim being made shortly after a policy being taken out or something like that. So again, ASIC says, you know, insurers have to look at this they have to think about how they're investigating claims and make sure they're that make sure that everything is above board well fishing has always bored me but do you think it's fair enough to go fishing if a claim comes in shortly after a policy is taken out or cover is extended terry not really yes they need to understand the circumstances around a claim but I have to say, I've met enough people who've been victimised by intense surveillance, which has been either incredibly unfair or even done mental harm. So 
it should be a last resort way to check on the validity of a claim. It should never be a fishing expedition to see if you can avoid paying the claim by digging up something a claimant might not have disclosed. And it's even worse in the case of some, and I emphasise some, state-based accident and workers' and workers' compensation investigations. So no, physical surveillance of a claimant is something no insurer should enter into without a very clear and strict understanding of the necessity for it. Full stop. Well, moving on, Wendy, you were lucky enough to attend the Australasian Professional Indemnity Group Conference last week. What are the highlights of this? Well, yes, I was. It was uh, very interesting. There were a lot of uh, topics covered, um, including uh, ransomware and the post-COVID environment and the general state of the market. And there was an interesting uh, presentation from Infinity's uh, Susie Amos, uh, where she said that the professional indemnity and directors and officers uh, class probably has at last reached um, insurer profitability targets, but that might be short-lived given there's some uh, capacity coming into the market. Then we have economic uh, instability which this class is aligned to. And with DNO, there's also risks coming from uh, regulatory change. So the, the previous coalition government introduced some laws that increase the hurdles for class actions and litigation funders. Uh, but this, this government is inclined to wind that back. Well, with that in mind, insurers and their clients may not welcome the federal government's latest announcements on litigation funders, Terry. They certainly might not. Um, litigation funding is a bit like, you know, sort of a bad Christmas. Um, you know, the, everybody's on the same track at the start, but by the end of the day, everybody's arguing. The federal government wants to unwind what, what Attorney General Mark Dreyfus calls the unfair treatment by the Morrison government of, of class action claimants, by which he means that they clamp down on litigation funders. They're the financiers who who back a, a class action in return for a share of the payout. And they're being seen now as an important way to facilitate access to justice. I'm sure the insurers don't see it that way. The exemptions from needing a financial services license and other regulations were reinstated after the Morrison government imposed them about two years ago. Hey, who knows? It might have been ScoMo himself disguised as the minister doing insurers a favour. Uh, but the funders aren't popular with insurers for very obvious reasons, but mostly because they've made class actions popular. Uh, and there's constant concern that some of these actions are designed to enrich lawyers and others rather than the claimants. So it's worth noting that the federal court's powers may be strengthened by the government to ensure fair and reasonable returns to class action members, which is a reminder that the funders aren't there to see justice done. Well, finally, John, after all that seriousness, let's have a bit of fun on the UK's expense with the UK's insurance fraud statistics. What's been going on over there? Yes, well, that's right. There's some statistics being released by the Association of British Insurers. And of course, insurance fraud is, is a serious business, Andrew. We shouldn't uh, laugh about it because we all pay for insurance fraud through our premiums. But there were some quite funny examples given by the, the ABI. So actually, the number of fraudulent claims fell uh, in the last uh, last year compared to the one before. As I say, they give some some examples of of claims that have gone awry. A woman pretended to be a passenger in a in a vehicle collision to make a bogus personal injury claim. However, investigations revealed she was in fact on holiday in Egypt when she was supposed to be receiving medical treatment, 
and the ABI sort of labels that as a pyramid scheme. Thought you'd like that, Andrew. Um, <laughs> I was going to say something about she's in denial. <laughs> oh, yes, very good. A semi-professional footballer in Scotland put in a claim for a, a, a nasty whiplash injury that he suffered in a car crash, only to be filmed scoring a hat trick in his football match. So uh, that didn't go so well. And also, you know, we talk a lot about telematics and how insurers uh, increasingly are using these sort of black boxes in cars to to help claimants get cheaper premiums if they drive safely and so on. But it can also help with, with claims. There was... Uh, uh, three blokes who um, put in a claim of over £48,000 for a crash, but their in-car telematics box showed that the vehicle was, in fact, stationary. So. <laughs> Fantastic. On that note, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Wendy Pugh and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.